Lesson 9 for May 23 to 29, Jesus the Master Teacher. Sabbath afternoon, May 23. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word again, we still want to thank you for who you are, what you do for us, and the great love that you show us. But we thank you that Jesus came and he he showed us, he taught us, he led us to understand what you want us to do in our lives and for this world. And as we open your word this week, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us. May we see Jesus as a teacher afresh. We pray in his dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Luke chapter 4 and verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Let's read that again, Luke chapter 4 and verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. When Christ came to the earth, humanity seemed to be fast reaching its lowest point. The very foundations of society were undermined. Life had become false and artificial. Disgusted with fable and falsehood, seeking to drown thought, men turned to infidelity and materialism. Leaving eternity out of their reckoning, they lived for the present. As we read in the book Education, page 74 and 75, As they ceased to recognize the divine, they ceased to regard the human. Truth, honor, integrity, confidence, compassion were departing from the earth. Relentless greed and absorbing ambition gave birth to universal distrust. The idea of duty, of the obligation of strength to weakness, of human dignity and human rights, was cast aside as a dream or a fable. The common people were regarded as beasts of burden or as the tools and the stepping stones for ambition. Wealth and power, ease and self-indulgence were sought as the highest good. Physical degeneracy, mental stupor, spiritual death characterized the age. End of quote. Against such a background, we can better understand why Jesus taught the things that he did. Sunday, May 24, The Authority of Jesus As a physician and scholar, Luke was acquainted with the role of authority. He was familiar with the authority of philosophy in Greek scholarship and education. He knew the authority of the Roman law in civil matters and government function. As Paul's travelling companion, he knew the ecclesiastic authority that the apostle commanded with the churches he founded. Thus Luke understood that authority is at the core of a person's position, an institution's role, a state's function, and a teacher's relationship to his or her followers. Having rubbed shoulders with all kinds of authority at all levels of power, Luke shared with his readers that there was something matchless about Jesus and his authority. Born in a carpenter's home, brought up for thirty years in the little Galilean town of Nazareth, known for nothing great by worldly standards, Jesus confronted everyone, 
Roman rulers, Jewish scholars, rabbis, ordinary people, secular and religious powers, with his teaching and ministry. His fellow townspeople, as it says in Luke 42, marvelled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. He once brought hope to a widow in Nain by raising her son to life in Luke chapter 7. The entire town went into a shiver of fear and exclaimed, in verse 16, God has visited his people. The authority of Jesus over life and death electrified not just Nain, but Judea and all the surrounding region, it said in verses 16 and 17. Question. Read Luke chapter 8, verse 22 to 25, chapter 4, verses 31 to 37, chapter 5, verses 24 to 26, chapter 7, 49, and 12, 8. What do these texts reveal about the kind of authority that Jesus wielded? Well, first of all, Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled with water, and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marvelled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. And chapter 4, beginning at verse 31, Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is! For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went about into every place in the surrounding region. And chapter 5, beginning at verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed. I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. And Luke chapter 7, verse 49. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? And Luke chapter 12 and verse 8. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. 
Luke took time to record not only for his friend Theophilus, but also for generations to come, that Jesus, through his ministry, had established the uniqueness of his authority. As God in the flesh, he indeed had authority as no one else ever did. And so to finish today, lots of people do things in the name of God, which would then, of course, give their actions a lot of authority. How can we be sure that when we say, God led me to do this, he really did? Discuss answers in class on Sabbath. Monday, May 25, Christ's Greatest Sermon The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5-7 to is often hailed in literature as the essence of Christianity. Luke provides selections of the sermon in Luke chapter 6 verses 20 through to 49 and elsewhere. Because Luke placed the sermon immediately after the official choosing of the disciples in Luke chapter 6 verse 13, Some scholars have called it the ordination charge to the twelve. As presented in Luke chapter 6 verses 20 through to 49, the sermon begins with four blessings and four woes and outlines other essential characteristics of the Christian way. Question. Study the following sections of Luke chapter 6 verses 20 to 49 and ask yourself how closely your life embraces the principles expressed here. Number 1. The Christian Blessedness, verses 22-22. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil, for the Son of Man's sake. Number two. The Christian reason for rejoicing in the midst of rejection. That's verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil, for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And number three, woes to guard against. Well, let's look at verses 24 to 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. And number four, verses um, 27 to 31. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, Do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, 
and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. No command of Jesus is more debated and is considered more difficult to keep than the golden rule of love. The Christian ethic is fundamentally positive, not negative. It does not consist of what not to do, but what to do. Instead of saying, don't hate your enemy, it insists, love your enemy. Instead of the law of reciprocity, tooth for a tooth, the golden rule demands the ethic of pure goodness, turn the other cheek also. Mahatma Gandhi developed out of the golden rule an entire political philosophy of resisting evil through good and eventually used this principle to win independence for India from British colonisation. Likewise, Martin Luther King Jr. employed the ethic of the golden rule to break the evil of segregation in the United States. Where love reigns, blessedness ascends the throne. Number five, the Christian way. Luke chapter six, verses 37 to 42. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Note Christ's insistence on forgiveness, liberal giving, exemplary living, and tolerance. Number six, the Christian fruit-bearing, and that's verses 43 to 45. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And question number seven, the Christian builder. And this is verses 48 and 49. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great.
Tuesday, May 26, A New Family. Great teachers before and since Jesus have taught about unity and love, but usually it's about love within the parameters of a single group, a family defined by the exclusivity of caste, colour, language, tribe or religion. But Jesus broke down the barriers that divide humans and ushered in a new family, one that made no distinction between the usual things that divide people. Under the banner of agape love, unmerited, non-exclusive, universal and sacrificial, Christ created a new family. This family reflects the original, universal and ideal concept enshrined in the Genesis creation, which attests that every human being is created in the image of God, as we've read many times before in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and therefore equal before him. Read Luke chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. Well, let's do that, then we'll continue. Then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd, and it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Without in any way minimising the ties and obligations that bind parents and children, brothers and sisters within a family, Jesus looked beyond flesh and blood and placed both of them at the altar of God as members of the whole family in heaven and earth, as expressed in Ephesians 3 verse 15. The family of Christian discipleship ought to be no less close and binding than the ties of having common parents. To Jesus, the true test of family is not blood relationships, but doing the will of God. Question. What do the following texts teach about the walls that Christ tore down in regard to the distinctions that so often divide humans and often with bad results too? Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. After these things he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he left him, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Luke chapter 7 verses 1 to 10. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So, when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with them to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation, and was built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. 
but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. And Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. And Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then, as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. The mission and ministry of Jesus, his forgiving heart and embracing grace, did not exclude anyone, but included all who would accept his call. His everlasting love brought him in touch with the entire spectrum of society. And a question to finish the day. What are ways that, as a church, we can better follow this crucial principle? Wednesday, May 27, Love Defined, The Parable of the Good Samaritan, Part 1.
Of the four Gospels, only Luke records the parables of the prodigal son and the Good Samaritan, and that's in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through to 37. The first one illustrates the vertical dimension of love, the extraordinary love of the Father towards sinners. The second one shows us the horizontal dimension, the kind of love that should characterize human life, refusing to acknowledge any barrier between humans, but living instead within Jesus' definition of a neighbor, that all human beings are children of God and deserve to be loved and treated equally. Question. Read Luke chapter 10 verses 25 to 28 and reflect on the two central questions raised. How is each question related to the main concerns of Christian faith and life? Luke chapter 10 verses 25 to 28 And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Point 1. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That was verse 25. Note that the lawyer sought for a way to inherit eternal life. To be saved from sin and enter into God's kingdom is indeed the noblest of all aspirations one can have. But the lawyer, like so many, had grown up with the false notion that eternal life is something one can earn by good works. Evidently, he had no knowledge that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, as it says in Romans 6.23. And point two. What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Verse 26. During the time of Jesus, it was the custom of prominent Jews, such as this lawyer, to wear a phylactery on the wrist. It was a little leather pouch in which were written some great portions of the Torah, including the one that would answer Jesus' question. Jesus directed the lawyer to what was written in Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19, verse 18, the very thing that he might have been carrying in his phylactery. Let's read those verses. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And Leviticus 19, verse 18, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. He had on his wrist, but not in his heart, the answer to his question. Jesus directed the lawyer to a great truth. Eternal life is not a matter of keeping rules, but calls for loving God absolutely and unreservedly, and likewise all God's creation, the neighbor to be precise. However, either out of ignorance or out of arrogance, the lawyer pursued the dialogue with another query, Who is my neighbour? And so to finish today, what outward evidence reveals that you have truly been saved by grace? That is, what is it about your life that shows you are justified by faith?
Thursday, May 28, Love Defined, The Parable of the Good Samaritan, Part 2. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? That was the question in Luke 10.29. An expert in the Jewish law, the lawyer must have known the answer to the question. Leviticus 19, verse 18, which we read yesterday, where the second great commandment is spelled out, and it defines neighbours as children of your people. Hence, instead of providing an immediate answer to the lawyer's question or getting into a theological dispute with him and those observing the episode, Jesus lifts the lawyer and his audience to a higher plane. Let's read Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 37. And the question is, what are the key points to this story and what do they reveal about how we are to treat others? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbour to him who fell among the thieves?' And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Notice that Jesus said that a certain man, in verse 30, fell among thieves. Why did Jesus not identify the man's race or status? Given the whole purpose of the story, why did it matter? The priest and the Levite saw the wounded man, but passed him by. Whatever their reasons for not helping... For us, the questions are, what is true religion, and how should it be expressed? Well, first of all, we'll look at a couple of texts, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. And Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Who has shown you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit the orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Hatred and animosity mark the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, and by the time of Jesus, the enmity between the two had only worsened, as we've read before in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 54. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face. And, as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. 
but they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? Hence, by making a Samaritan the hero of the story, Jesus brought home his point, in this case to the Jews, even stronger than it otherwise might have been. Jesus described the Samaritan's ministry in great detail. He took pity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine, carried him to an inn, paid in advance for his stay, and promised to care for any balance on his way back. All these parts of the Samaritan's ministry together define the limitlessness of true love. The fact, too, that he did all these for a man who was possibly a Jew reveals that true love knows no frontier. And so to finish the day, the priest and the Levite ask themselves the question, What would happen to us if we stopped and helped this man? The Samaritan asked, What would happen to this man if I didn't help him. What is the difference between the two? Friday, May 29 from the book The Desire of Ages, page 649. In his life and lessons, Christ has given a perfect exemplification of the unselfish ministry which has its origin in God. God does not live for himself. By creating the world and by upholding all things, he is constantly ministering for others. He maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust, Matthew 5.45. This ideal of ministry God has committed to his Son. Jesus was given to stand at the head of humanity, that by his example he might teach what it means to minister. His whole life was under a law of service. He served all, ministered to all. Thus he lived the law of God, and by his example showed how we are to obey it. And page 499, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not an imaginary scene, but an actual occurrence, which was known to be exactly as represented. The priest and the Levite, who had passed by on the other side, were in the company that listened to Christ's words. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. Go over the important question asked at the end of Sunday's study. Who hasn't heard people say that they did whatever they did because God told them to? What are ways that God does talk to us? At the same time, what are the dangers involved in invoking the authority of God in order to justify our deeds? Question 2. Go back over the four woes in Luke 6.24-26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. How are we to understand what Jesus is saying here? 
What is he really warning us to be careful of in this life? And question three. Think about the whole question of authority. What is authority? What are different kinds of authority? What kinds of authority trump other kinds? How should we relate to different kinds of authority in our life? What happens when the authorities over us clash? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Searching for Peace, Part 1, and it comes from Tan, who lives in China. Tan thought religion was just superstition, yet somehow he still felt a spiritual longing. One day he set out on a pilgrimage in search of peace. He journeyed to a distant city where he met a Christian pastor who introduced him to the Bible. For several days the two studied together, and Tan felt drawn to the God of the Bible. But he decided to search further before committing himself. Two months later, Tan returned to the pastor, wanting to learn more. They resumed their Bible studies. This time, Tan decided to become a Christian. Sometime later, Tan decided to return to his home village to share the gospel with his family and friends. When he arrived at his village, he began sharing his faith, but the people were not eager to listen. Some rejected his message, others made fun of him. Tan fasted and prayed, God, is there no one here who will listen? Tan found no one, except the local troublemaker named Tao Ya. Tao belonged to a gang that terrorized the town. Four members of the gang were jailed and another was killed during some of their more violent activities. Although Teo had a reputation as a hardened gambler, fighter and drinker, Tan talked with him about his spiritual condition and offered to pray with him. But Teo laughed and said that if he ever needed God, he would let Tan know. No one will listen to me, Tan thought. He decided to leave town and find some believers with whom he could study. As he started out, Teo saw him and fell into step behind him. As the two walked down the road, Tan felt impressed to pray for Teo. Teo tried to brush aside Tan's request to pray, but finally he agreed. They stopped along the road and Tan prayed. Before they parted, Tan gave Teo a small Bible, hoping he would read it. Then they said goodbye. Tan wondered whether he would ever see Tao again, or whether he would hear that Tao had died in some fight. Tan set off for a large city, where he had heard there was a group of active Christians. When he arrived in the city, he was warned that he should return to his home province or risk being arrested. Although he bought a train ticket home, Tan decided to remain and try to find the Christians he had heard about. He got a map and began searching. He found a Seventh-day Adventist church and met Pastor Sho and several young people who were studying to become lay church leaders. Tan was delighted when Pastor Sho invited him to stay and study the Bible. To be continued in next week's Inside Story, we'll just have to wait. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr. Percy Harold. 
This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is always faithful.